welcome back to the non-standard 14er podcast, the podcast that tells you everything the route description leaves out about climbing Colorado's 14ers. I'm Tay Jack, and I'm joined today by Short Road Stifler. Hey. Exiled Michigander. Hey. Jason Jack. Hey, everybody. We're uh, honored today to have Mark Scott Nash on the podcast. He's the author of Colorado 14er Disasters, and he's got over 10 years of search and rescue experience. He's a Colorado native, born and raised, loves the peaks, and uh, wrote a phenomenal book about uh, some really interesting and insightful yet detailed accounts of some of the uh, disasters on the 14ers. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Great to be here. I thought we'd just jump right in, just chat about how you got into search and rescue and how you go about writing a book on Colorado 14ers disasters. Yeah, that's a good, good questions. So, yeah, how did I get into search and rescue? So, back in the late 80s, I was uh, pretty much a novice mountaineer. By the way, I grew up in Colorado and, um, you know, been in the mountains or around the mountains my whole life. But I didn't really, like, focus on mountain climbing until I, you know, became an adult. <laughs> so uh, about, uh, sometime in the late 80s, we were trying to climb Mount Sneffels. And um, as, you know, typical novices, we were, you know, we didn't bring a map. Or we didn't. We just thought we'll be able to find it. We're just going to follow the trail. The trail's got to be obvious when you get up there. Well, we got like way off course. Not way off, but we missed. We went up the wrong side of the valley, and uh, you know, just kind of thought Gilpin Peak was Mount Sneffels, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we ended up. Uh, we didn't climb Gilpin Peak because it looked like way too hard. And uh, so we just kind of ended up going over a pass and down to a lake. And then we came back <clears throat> over that pass and there was a, uh, a rescue going on. And we had figured out by that point that, you know, what Mount Sneffels was or where it was, which was right in front of us, but, you know. And um, this rescue was uh, a guy who had um, gotten to the top and they were coming down and it's kind of loose up there. So he, I guess, stepped on a boulder or something and it rolled and broke his, rolled over his leg and broke his leg. So, so the Uray rescue team was going up um, carrying a litter and we decided, they asked for help actually because they were trying to get in quickly. <clears throat> so we helped the, the guy uh, who was actually in front of everybody um, carry the litter Know, up that steep couloir on the normal route to the summit. And, um, you know, it was all exciting. And like, hey, we participated in the rescue and all this stuff. And um, <clears throat> after that, I, I went to, uh, we lived in or around Boulder at the time. And so I knew about Rocky Mountain Rescue. And so I went to um, see about joining that because I, I just thought it was a, Pretty unique experience, you know, and yeah, you know, it was fun. Although that's kind of strange way to say it to people, but it is. It was fun to do, you know, because you're doing a good thing and you're doing what you like to do. And so we, uh, or I, tried to uh, join Rocky Mountain Rescue at the time, but it just kind of required too much um, commitment for me that I really wanted to put in at that time because I wanted to go mountain climbing more than I wanted to do rescue, and so. I, I wanted to do it, but I just didn't have time. So 
for the next 10 years, uh, did a lot of really hard mountain climbing, you know, and I kind of progressed mainly with and with friends from the Colorado Mountain Club. We did climbs all over the world, Himalayas, uh, South America, and um, Denali, like this picture here is from kind of, I think, 16.5 on Denali. Yeah, so then <laughs> we were leading, or we were meeting up with a group of people to climb Quandary Peak. Uh, and this is in 1998. This is like late 90s, I, I guess. We kind of missed our group because we got there late to the trailhead late, <laughs> which is pretty common, right? You know, people do that all yeah, yeah. Actually, Quandary. And uh, <clears throat> so we, we wanted to do the West Ridge route. Um, which is a little harder, but it's it's actually not hard. It's just like a little more scrambling, a little more fun. It's also looser, uh, so you got to be kind of careful. Anyway, we knew our friends were there. They were just they had left because we weren't there in time. We didn't catch them until we got to the summit. And uh, on the summit, we caught up with one of the people. He said, "Oh yeah, um, you know, Mary is down this core down here because somebody fell down it." Uh, was climbing on the ridge, same ridge, just below the summit, and pulled off a block. This woman was climbing, down climbing. She pulled the block off, and because it was loose, and just kind of tumbled down this this gully. And so, oh, and so I went down, and uh, she was about 200 feet down. I went down, and and uh, Mary, the, the the woman who was there first, was a nurse. She was a knew a lot of medical, and she had been taking care of this woman as best she could. She was unconscious with a pretty severe head injury. And, um, you know, the main thing to do in that situation is keep them alive, which means like keep them breathing, if, you know, do what you can, right? She didn't have any special equipment or anything. One thing uh, I learned at that point was if somebody's unconscious, you know, you gotta keep them kind of positioned so that, you know, they can breathe and, you know, if anything happens, like if they vomit or something, you know, they don't aspirate. Uh, but one of the problems with unconscious people um, with a head injury is that they, their tongue gets in the way. So what she did was she had in her first aid kit a safety pin. And she safety pinned the woman's tongue to her lip. <laughs> and she said she had read that that's the thing you do. And it was because it was hours before, you know, any real help got there, like an actual paramedic with the equipment to, to intubate her. Um, and then she was taken off the mountain by a Blackhawk. Similar kind of thing to what happened with your previous. Uh, Josh uh, Coleman. Josh, yeah. That was a good podcast, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah, um, John and I had a great time interviewing him. Yeah. He, he's, he's really, really honest and, you know, right to the point. Uh, and, and it's very typical of people who've gotten into accidents, I think. Um, they're very grateful. And, you know, when they do want to talk about it, they're, they're, they're up front. Yeah. <laughs> this is what happened, and this is how I felt. Um, anyway, she, uh, the woman, uh, uh, well, this Blackhawk came in right before dusk. So you can imagine we're in this uh, core, right? It's like a valley now, right, with, you know, big wall, 50-foot walls on the sides, uh, probably you know, a thousand feet, or not not a thousand feet wide, probably 500 feet wide. 
then his black op comes in really close and lowers a litter with a with a rescue uh, guy. And these are uh, army guys, right? Uh, it was kind of a, a cluster because uh, it was really hard to get him down and 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 get the woman onto the litter, strapped in, and then you know back up where they they hoisted the litter. In the meantime, this this uh, black hawk is hovering. I swear to God, 100 feet above you, and it's like it's it's a hurricane. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all the wind from the helicopter, all the noise. It's pretty amazing. And you know, we got her in, and we're clip, clipping onto the to the hoist, and there's a little safety pin that you put it like there's a clip, and there's a little safety pin that you put in so it doesn't unclip. And I was trying to get that in, and what you know wasn't closed quite right, and I was trying to get it in. And all of a sudden, the, the helicopter zoomed away. Cool. And about, uh, I'm lucky I survived because I, I would have ripped my thumb out. You know, just, it was, didn't even break it or anything like that. But I was really lucky. And, you know, usually what happens is that what's going on there is that they notice something funky going on with the helicopter and they got to just leave because, you know, there's an updraft or some, some kind of an instability with uh, their hovering. And, uh, that's always like possible, you know, I guess. And uh, anyway, we walk off the mountain and uh, you know, it's just kind of experience that's um, just really profound, you know? I mean, it's just real, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, say un- unforgettable, but it's deeper than that, right? It's just a real um, visceral, you know, I mean, you really feel it. So then I thought, man, I really got to get a kid into mountain rescue now because this is a really uh, cool thing to do. And then I actually joined up uh, with Rocky Mountain Rescue. I was uh, really active for about 10 years. A lot of interesting stuff we could talk about, but um, that's how I got into rescue. And I got into writing about um, the 14ers really is, um, I, that's my second book. Um, I have another one called Thing for Real, which is about Rocky Mountain Rescue. Uh, which came out before, uh, it's nowhere near as popular, but it came out before uh, 14er Disasters. After the 14er Disasters, I thought, I want to write a book that, you know, a lot more people are going to read, <laughs> not so local. And, or, I mean, after uh, playing for real. You know, I, I guess you can you can get on Amazon or whatever, but um, <clears throat> that's really focused on on the rescue group. And it's, it's like uh, Josh's book. I, I've donated all the, the proceeds for that book to Rocky Mountain Rescue. Honey. And uh, yeah, it was, and, and so I thought I want to write a book that's real, um, did, you know, has a wider audience. And I picked Colorado 14 Air Disasters mainly because, A, you know, if you want to get an audience for mountain climbing in Colorado, you have to have the word 14 or in the title. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, B, that's where everybody's climbing. I mean, not everybody, but man, the vast majority of people who are hiking in Colorado on mountains are, are hiking 14ers, which is kind of crazy in my view because there is so much, you know, uh, available other than 14ers. But I decided if I'm gonna call it 14er disasters, I should just focus on on the kind of accidents that happened there on 14ers. And, the, you know, it's not specific to 14ers, these accidents, but they're the ones that actually happened there. And so people can relate to that a little bit better. And I also um, wanted to write it in a way that wasn't kind of a, you know, anonymous kind of 
dry, you know, kind of book. I'd rather have it be, this is what happened. This, this through my, you know, opinions and experience is, is why it happened this way. And um, I, I'm going to, you know, say what happened. I, I'm not going to, uh, well, like people who review it say, oh, he's not pulling any punches. Well, actually I was, but <laughs> say a lot worse things. I really tried to, to be honest and say, this is, this is, you know, why this happens and not in a way that doesn't actually make the person look like an idiot because I really don't think that that has any uh, place in talking about mountaineering accidents or, you know, accidents that happen to people. They're accidents. Nobody wants to be in an accident. <laughs> so the first edition went out and about 10 years later I wrote a second edition, which, which is really just adding a few stories that happened more recently. But, uh, you know, there's certain classes of, you know, accidents or disasters, you know, happen over and over again. And, you know, except for things like that are just random, oh, a rock fell down and, you know, killed him. I don't know if there's anything you can do about that, you know, when you're climbing. There's hazards in the mountains, right? That, Mark, um, that's what you talk about in the preface, right? You talk about objective versus subjective yeah. kind of risk. Right, right. And, um, yeah, and that, that's, that's also a, um, kind of a, there's a fuzzy line between the two when you get down to it. Because you can say, well, you know, you're, you're subjectively going into the mountains because you want to go climb. If you didn't do that, you wouldn't die. You know, people wouldn't have a chance of having an accident in the mountains. But, but that's not the point, right? <laughs> this is the thing where I, have, I, I am in no way deterring people from climbing or climbing hard or dangerous stuff. I, I think that you just have to understand what you're doing. I try to make that clear and I try to, to tell people that, you know, if, uh, well, let's just not say they're idiots in the mountains because that's really another kind of observation. And this is uh, granted a little anecdotal, but if you look at the rescues that happen and the accidents that happen, there's no particular experience group that experiences more accidents than any other. So, the experts are, are experiencing accidents as, you know, essentially as often as beginners or novices. So in that sense, it's not, it, it's not your experience level that's causing the accident. It's the more experienced person may want to take a higher risk and a less experienced person may not know as much, but, but it doesn't mean that they're um, experiencing more accidents. Now, Mark, question for you. One, one thing I really appreciate about your book is the balance that you strike between informative and respectful. I think whenever an accident happens in the mountains, um, it's kind of taboo to say anything more other than thoughts and prayers with the family anymore. I really appreciate that you do kind of get into the weeds on some of that stuff. You know, the rest of us are scrolling through the comments wondering what happens and you answer that, but in a very respectful way. So one, I appreciate that. I love the book. I read it all in one sitting. What was that like for you to kind of get in and get into the weeds on that, but also strike the balance of being respectful? Yeah, thanks. I actually uh, did intend it to be that way. And, you know, one thing um, that happened, or, you know, this is pre-internet internet days, is every time you read about an accident, if you knew anything about it, if you, if you had been near it or knew, knew people involved with it, 
the media reports are completely wrong, completely, either completely uninformed or, or they may want to make it sound more, you know, uh, they, they want to emphasize some point to make it more, uh, you know, clickable. <laughs> yeah, what's the word? I can't think of a word, but just make it make it dramatic, you know, or or you know whatever, uh, which is what the media does because they need to sell uh, newspapers or whatever. Also, the <clears throat> publication. Um, Accents in North American mountaineering. That's terrible. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of the best thing you have for a consistent publication, but they rely so much on um, re reports that have no basis. I mean, just kind of. This is what we saw a report on the internet. This is what we saw in the newspaper. Um, you get a report from a national park. That sounds a lot better, right? Because the rangers have to go in and actually make a report, and it's official. However, the um, several of the rescues that I had been on or involved with in national parks have always the, the reports have always come out with <clears throat> we have to blame something on the climber for political reasons. I, I assume that's why they're doing it um, because it's just uh, there's no real reason other than we have to justify our job and we have to justify why we did this. And um, so I, I just, the statistics are, are not very good in accidents in North American mountaineering because they're, they're, um, they're just voluntarily reported and not everybody reports to them. Mm -hmm. And there were years going by um, and Rocky Mountain Rescue didn't do anything with them because Nobody in the group wanted to write up a report and send it to them, and just because they had other things to do, I guess. And so, Rocky Mountain Rescue is one of the busiest rescue groups in the country, and they're not getting those statistics. Again, it's the best thing we have, but um, not not really great. So, I just kind of thought because of those two things, um, there's people aren't really understanding what it could be a lot better <laughs> to explain what's going on to people. On top of that, there's a third thing, and that is, you know, you get, you know, and I'm not trying to make this sound arrogant or anything of that nature, but you kind of get these, you know, people who climb 14ers that say, there's no like test you have to take to do this, there's no certification, there's nothing. And usually when people climb them, and you know, I might be a little out of date with this because it's probably a bit better now than it was a few years ago, but you know, oh, this person has climbed 10 14ers, they've got to be an expert. And you know, they tell me about it all the time. I'm gonna go with them because I've never done it before. And you know, there's nothing um there's no qualification, there's there's nothing except the person talking about what they did. And people generally don't talk about the mistakes they make and, and all this stuff. They would rather be viewed as somebody who knows what they're doing. And I can tell you when I started climbing and I climbed 10, 14 years, I didn't know a damn thing about what I was doing. It took a long time. And you also need to uh, get that experience of having climbed these mountains to actually, you know, well, I never saw a thunderstorm on a mountain. Okay, well, you will eventually, <laughs> eventually get in one. 
And, um, you know, it won't happen right away. But, um, you know, you might climb uh, 50 without ever being a thunderstorm. But when you get, when you do get caught in one, it's pretty intense, you know. And knowing what to do and knowing not to like freak out about it or panic or whatever is a pretty good thing to know. So Colorado 14er disasters, the reason I opened up the book with a talus monkey uh, story was because this guy, if you read the internet postings, he was a hero to so many people. Mainly because I think he climbed a lot of 14ers and he had a great charismatic personality, you know. Um, and that's all great. However, he made, you know, he, had, he did a lot, he made, he took a lot of shortcuts. He, and I, and I think I show, uh, demonstrate that. Actually, the people who knew him, who I interviewed, were kind of like, yeah, he was kind of, he's a little rec reckless, or maybe a lot. I mean, they don't want to, okay, my friend is just to hide. You know? They don't really want to talk about that. And I understand that, but it's it's important to know that you know because this guy was so popular, you know you could view this as, my God, he's you know if he's going to die in the mountains in an accident, you know nobody has a chance. It's like well, no, you can prevent <laughs> if you if you if you kind of follow some common sense, you can prevent the kind of things that happen. Anyway, that's those things are why. I wanted to kind of get into the, the personalities of people as well as their experience level and what they actually did and what happened with them. And so I, I wrote about a lot of people in this book that I knew um, prior to them having an accident. And um, they all, everybody I talked to anyway, has said, yeah, you know, that was, that's, you know, that, that's what I did. And that's, that's kind of, you know, my mistake, and I, I kind of said, well, I, you know, I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to single you out or anything. I'm just trying to say, you know, I'm trying to be respectful yet show it. And they understood that. That was a good question. <laughs> what is the story of Talus Monkey? That's the Humboldt overnighter. Yeah, what they did was they set out in spring, I believe it was springtime. It's a really hard time to find. It's a long way in, a lot of snow, and they got to the summit and camped on the summit, which that time of year is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, as long as you're paying attention to the weather, it can be terrible late in the year, I mean, not from thunderstorms, but from you know hurricane force winds that will come up in the middle of the night. But they were okay with that. Um, that's a really high camp though, at 14,000 feet. I mean, not, none of us live at 14,000 feet. All right, we climb that high, we're up there for a few hours. Uh, even if you camp up there, you know, unless you live that high or, you know, or that high all the time, not really acclimated to that uh, kind of altitude. The next morning, they, uh, he, you know, decided he wanted to go, let's say, down uh, the side of the mountain. I don't know that there was any particular gully he was shooting for or... Uh, what I don't, I'm, I'm positive he didn't know what was below him, and she was surprised he, he took off uh, glissading, and I believe he wasn't even using his ice axe. Uh, 
you know, th there's a bunch of um, problems with that. A uh, big problem with that was exactly what happened was he hit, hit rocks, at, you know, and he's probably well out of control. You know, I think I, I pointed out in, in the last chapter that he, he had done this earlier, uh, down another mountain, took off down, uh, down, glissading down a gully that he, he uh, didn't really have any, you know, he might have used a ski pole or something as a, as a break. But, you know, that's pretty dangerous and you don't want to go too fast when you're doing that. But he admitted at, on that other mountain to his friend that, you know, he, he, he shouldn't have done that. And, you know, it was a mistake. And he got out of control. You know, he, here's a guy who has experience. It doesn't seem like he's using it very wisely. Or his judgment was clouded uh, for various reasons and had the accident. I thought it was important to, to kind of show people or kind of just kind of show the full story of what happened because, uh, you know, again, the personality thing and kind of a lot of accidents, you really don't, you're not going to get the, this is what the guy did. That was a mistake. And then we name the guy. Sometimes you'll see reports that, well, you know, tell you all the details, but not, you know, the kind of anonymous person. And other times you'll see, oh, the person got in the accident, but you won't hear, hear the details. I thought it was important to, to have both of these just because it kind of demonstrates that, you know, it's not your personality or your um, perceived experience. It's, it's, it's how you manage uh, your objective danger. Um, what's a teachable moment there from the Talus Monkey story? And make sure you have an ice axe and stay on the route that you climbed. Uh, the teachable moment, I think, in, in um, I think most of my uh, stories that I've written about is that uh, think about what you're doing, and that does that sounds simple, <laughs> but really it's not because because there's summit fever. There's a lot of things that will cloud your judgment on a mountain, and we all have it. Right, summit fever. Everybody has it, sometime or another, or all the time, or I don't know if any. I don't think anybody climbs a mountain that doesn't have some fever at, at, at least some time, right? You're also um, not thinking like you are here. Like we're, we're just sitting around. I mean, maybe a little bit of, you know, beer is clouding my judgment, but <laughs> you know, it's not like the stress of the environment, which is, you know, <laughs> you can be really hot, you can be really cold, you can be hypoxic, it can be, uh, dehydrated, you can be hypocaloric. There's so many things that will affect your uh, mental state, um, and and it's 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 insidious because you usually don't recognize that um, when you're climbing. Even when you get back, I think people don't recognize that. Um, you just kind of get into another state. So when I say think about what you're doing, what you have to do is kind of recognize that that can be um, one of your driving factors of climbing, right? Uh, summit fever. Um, is this a really a good idea considering that, well, I don't think I have summit fever, but let me let me think about whether I really do or not, you know? Or I think it'd be fun to go to the same down the slope. Well, okay, what, what, are, what are the dangers of that? Well, it could get really steep and I had never done it before. And there could be rocks, could be icy. So I can't self-arrest. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, that you want to watch for. 
when you do that. So the teachable moment is think about what you're doing before you do it. And um, or consider, um, consider your actions. You know, it's, kinda, it's, it's not Disneyland. So Mark, I have a question about Mount of the Holy Cross. Is that yeah. mountain, is it possessed? What's, what's going on with that? Because wow. when I climbed it, I had read your book and I knew that I had to stay on the, on the descent. I had to stay on that North Ridge. For some reason, I, I was drawn inexplicably. Like I wanted to go towards that valley to the west. What it, I, I can't remember what the drainage, Cross, Cross Creek drainage, right? Yeah, and I didn't yeah. because I'd read your book. But like, it seems like that should be the way down for some reason. I don't know. It's an odd yeah. feeling. Yeah, I, you know, I almost wrote an entire book about that mountain, just because there's so many stories about it. It's pretty. I don't know why. It's kind of this center. Of, it's like the Bermuda Triangle, you know. And this this is like goes way back before before the fourteen er phase. There's actually the whole legend of finding the mountain. And like they did, they had, there were rumors in the east about the mountain that nobody had found, but there was a cross on it. But starting with that, I mean, there's been so many. It was closed. That whole area was closed in the 40s when they had Camp Hale uh, uh, during the World War II because they were training there and they didn't want anybody around there. Yeah, there, there's a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of weird stuff that's happening around that mountain. Yeah, again, I was like I said, I was going to write a whole book on that, and somebody somebody could got to do a lot more research. <laughs> but yeah, the Michelle Vanek story in 14 or Disasters, that is, uh, I, I'm surprised she hasn't been found yet, actually. And yet, I, I'm not surprised because it's such you're on the mountain and you saw how big that wilderness is. <laughs> it's so big. I mean. You know, you can't search that area with, you know, 10,000 people may not find it. The, the searches sound like they're huge and they go on for days, right? Like we had 500 people searching for five days and, and they didn't find anything, you know, uh, about Michelle anyway. Um, so all these rumors came out, you know, well, maybe she wasn't there. Maybe she was murdered. Uh, she was there. And I seriously doubt she was murdered. The thing that, that's hard to, to fathom when you read stories, you know, if you haven't, haven't actually been there and seen it, is that, that the space is so big and the amount of places you can be that are hidden from view is, you know, infinite. You know, in that story, I don't know if you remember this, that we did a search for in Rocky Mountain National Park with this guy named Jeff Christensen, who was a ranger. And he had disappeared. And they, they knew pretty much the area he was in. Uh, a lot smaller area than, than uh, Holy Cross. And this, uh, there were hundreds of, I mean, you know, close to the front range, you can get a lot of people searching. Hundreds of searchers. And Rocky Mountain Rescue was involved in that, um, along with a lot of other rescue groups. And the park rangers and, and they had helicopters, they had search dogs, they had you know, everything you can think of. Couldn't find him. He was found on the last day by some people hiking uh, right in the area that, that, that he should have been in. Uh, they, they considered that ever area had been covered already because they, they kind of do 
when they manage searches, they do this kind of, um, they have this system where they, they say, what's your probability of detection in your search area? And if it's, you know, like, if you say it's 90%, that means if the person was there, there's a 90% chance that somebody in our group would have seen them. Um, but these search areas are gigantic. And, and you have to estimate this by just like, I think it's 90%. <laughs> yeah, it's just somebody who was searching will, will kind of come up with a number. Who knows how they, an individual will come up with that number. Um, so they, they consider that area ha as having been covered, which doesn't mean they're not going to go back, but it's, you know, they're going to look in other places uh, possibly first before they go back to that one. But they were about ready to give up that search before some hikers found him uh, 20 feet off the trail. Huh. And he was, what he had done was he was solo climbing, uh, not climbing, but kind of reconning a ridge by Mount Ypsilon, I think. When they found him, he, he, he had a head injury in his shirt. I think his shirt was off and he, he had, you know, made a bandage kind of dressing to hold the blood on his head. Um, but he died of a head injury, basically. Um, he had a radio with him uh, and the radio face was cracked. So they figured, well, maybe the radio didn't work. Well, the radio did work huh. and he could have contacted, uh, he could have called for help for where, from where he was. He was in radio uh, range, um, but he didn't, which is a mystery. Um, but that's probably due to a head injury, possibly also from embarrassment from you know, getting injured, doing something that he does all the time. But uh, the, the bottom line is you can get all these searchers out there and have this big search operation going, but that doesn't mean they're gonna find you, um, especially in a big area like Holy Cross. But anyway, yeah, so since, you know, I don't know what's, I don't know if anything's happened, you know, in the last couple of years on the Holy Cross, but after Michelle Bannock, there was, there was a couple other weird disappearances. So, so she vanished like 300 feet below the summit, right? After doing Halo Ridge all day, and then yeah. they lost. Yeah, that was her last, the last place that she was seeing that. So she was seen on, uh, so there's a, you know, if you climb the summit, if you, if you climb Halo Ridge, there's a, a kind of a saddle right before you get to the summit. That's where they separated during your climbing partner. Yeah, I mean, talk about summit fever. This guy had, you know, he needed to get to, to the top. And, um, you know, told Michelle to go around the summit but that's really difficult to do. I mean, try it sometime. Say at the same altitude, say, you know, just kind of contour around a, a, a summit home like that. It's almost impossible for somebody who's even thinking about it, you know. And so it's not no surprise really that, uh, you know, she didn't get back to the trail. Well, it is a little surprising that, that they, you know, wherever she ended up, they, they couldn't find her because I think unless I'm guessing she fell or was hurt early on because I think she would have been hurt. I think that somebody in her state could have easily survived a night. Wouldn't be feeling good, but you could. So the next day there were a lot of people out there looking. 
Um, maybe they weren't very close, but you can yell out. There's all kinds of things. And even surviving multiple days was, was probably not, I think, you know, she was young enough and strong enough to be able to do that. I don't think there's any question that she would have if she had been alive on those uh, days. But, you know, that's just my theory. I don't really know. Hmm. And if she was alive, I think they would have found her. So your second edition came out in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, is that correct? In 2017, I think there were five deaths on Capitol, which would give you enough material for half of a third edition, I think. Oh, um, if, Really? Yeah. If you, I mean, I'd love a, I'd love a third edition. I mean, not that I <laughs> enjoy the fact that there's more subject matter, but I'm, I'm curious, do you know anything about those incidents on that peak in particular during that one summer? And if you do, you know. <laughs> I don't actually. Uh, in 2017, I was on a sailboat, um, and I wasn't really following that. I, and I have to tell you that uh, it is—it's taken a lot out of me to write about people's worst day in their life, sure. <laughs> and the people around them, their families' worst day. So I kind of um, haven't been following that uh, much. But no, I don't. I mean, I don't know any details of the Jackson's okay. vessel. Lot. So, Mark, in that same vein, I mean, like you said, it, it's taxing, right, to write about this, these tracks, yeah. and obviously it's good content because it's something that everybody can learn from, but how, how does that look for you when you're coping with all the research and all the conversations that you have to have with loved ones that have lost somebody? I mean, what, what, what do you do to cope with writing something like this? Uh, it's really difficult to talk to um, Talking to survivors is not that hard. Sure. Um, because they survived and then, you know, they had a bad day. Talking with um, friends is also not terrible. I mean, it's worse. I'm talking to family members is terrible. So I really try to keep myself a little distance. I let them, I let people talk and say what they want to say. Um, I, I try to encourage them to, to say, you know, what they want to say. I, I try not to, like, pry into, I, there's obvious things, but I really just try to keep a, a distance from, from the accidents. That does build up in you. Um, it has in me, and, you know, the sad, to talk about a third edition, I mean, the CMC actually asked me last year, I wanted to do that, and I thought, I don't know, is there something else I can write about? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I just when I, I've noticed that when I've finished these books, I've been like, you feel like you've run a marathon or something, you know, it's just, and you don't want to do it again. And uh, you kind of give up, get over it. I mean, the, on the other hand, on the cool side is um, I've been contacted by people who discovered that I've written about their relatives and they think it's really cool. Um, I mean, they don't think the actions are cool, but they think that it's, it's um, cool that they, you know, that their relatives, um, you know, have gotten a fair treatment and, and a, uh, uh, you know, 
that they feel like their relatives have done fair treatment and they really like the, the writers and think it's worth it. And part of me is being you know, intellectually curious about how people do get in accidents because I didn't want to, made me just kind of study them from early on and uh, try to avoid the errors. I do remember doing some climbs, like when, when we would climb, do stuff like climbing Keener's route on, on Long's Peak, I'd be really nervous the whole time, like let's not make the mistakes that you know, people have made before. And um, that's probably the most effect that I've had, that I've noticed, I can remember anyway. Um, other things, it, it does make you think twice when you're like in a really remote area. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you go climb, there, there's some remote mountains in Colorado, you know, um, which if you get in trouble, you know, good luck. I mean, you're, you're you, if, if they can't get a helicopter, uh, you may be out there for a day or two. Yeah. Um, but if you go to a uh, place like Peru or Bolivia, yeah, there's no helicopter from the uh, You get hurt there and, you know, you are <laughs> in trouble, you know, Nepal. You know, you hear about these helicopter rescues in Nepal on Everest. That's so rare. I mean, if you get in, in an accident, maybe they're going to come up and, and rescue on, on Everest because, you know, it's a famous mountain. Um, you know, they want to look good. Uh, the rescuers, which is usually a military pilot. If you're on some other small peak, <laughs> just get somebody down the mountain and out to a place where they could call for help. It's going to take days. So, you know, those, those are, you climb in those places and, and you're, you're, uh, you really got to be careful. And so, you know, my, uh, believe it or not, my philosophy has always been, you know, I'm, my goal is to climb to the summit, but, um, you know, I'm there for the experience. And there's a lot of mountains I didn't get to the summit of because I thought they were too dangerous. And a lot of them I got to the summit of, and I don't regret any of it. I mean, I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, if I miss uh, getting to the summit of, you know, some peak. And so you talk about uh, like a broken ankle on Humboldt can be just as deadly as a hundred foot fall on Maroon because the search and rescue operation down in Humboldt and Songgraves is a lot sparser. It's hard to get to. Yeah, so um, where that comes from is um, the remoteness, the definition of remoteness, I guess, is, is a good, uh, in, in terms of if help can get to you, right? You know, uh, the Maroon Bells, the rescue team around there is, is pretty robust. They've got Aspen and they've got uh, Vail uh, nearby. Um, they've got you know, several... Um, they've got resources in that, in that valley, right? Front range, Denver and Boulder, if you're going to get in an accident, that's where you want to do, do it, is in those two jurisdictions because 
they've got uh, really good rescuers because they've got a great population to choose from, a lot of people, uh, and the money to do it. These other places in Colorado are a lot sketchier. I, actually, I'll, I'll include, like around Summit County is probably um, not so bad now either because there's so many people up there and, and they've, they've, got, they've got a pretty robust uh, team going in that area. But Custer County, which is where uh, Humboldt and you know, Creston are, where people get in trouble anyway, that county is tiny. I mean, they, they have hardly any population, they have a small team. When they have a really difficult rescue, like in Preston Needle, um, like Josh, they actually call for help from the Colorado Search and Rescue Board. And what they, this CSRB is what, what they're called. What they do is they go out and um, start calling out teams in, um, in con, like concentric, concentric rings. So they get the closer ones first, get as many people as they can get, volunteers. Then they move out. Okay, we'll get the next next uh, closest people because all these all these volunteers have to drive down there, right? And um, it takes time to do that and get the people organized. When they have a big rescue like that, they they almost uh, I mean basically they always have to call for help. And if people can come, they can come. If they can't, they can't. And, and you can see the response time is like days, right? Or could be. You know, if you can get a helicopter down there, that's great. A lot of issues with that, but. That's how a lot. That's where a lot of helicopter rescues take place because it's so difficult to get a team in there. But sometimes they have to do it because they can't get a helicopter or they can't fly a helicopter in there, and um, it takes a long time. So, yeah, if you get in trouble there, you know that's going to be uh, a bigger issue. Mark, I've got a question for you that I'm going to steal from one of my favorite podcasters, Tim Ferriss. He asks everybody this, and I, and I think it pertains to this topic too. From a search and rescue perspective, if you had the opportunity to commandeer the billboard at the base of I-70 that everybody sees as they go up to the 14ers, I think the best advice we could give is for everybody to read your book if they're into the 14ers. But that aside, <laughs> you could commandeer that billboard and have it say one message for everybody going up to play on the 14ers. What would be your message? It has to be short to fit on the billboard. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big billboard. It could be long, yeah. <laughs> well, I got to read it too as I drive by. <laughs> um, not anymore because they'll be in traffic they've got a lot of time to read it Ew. <laughs> yeah you gotta come up with a, i mean i would have to come up with some cover that that's that's on par with think about where you are um but that's that's too kind of flippant sounding um you gotta you need some more focus uh you know like yeah the climbing 14ers you're not in disney world <laughs> something like that. I don't know. It'd have to be something short and sweet and uh, to the point of, yeah, you're going to have fun. Yeah, let's have fun and not, not you yeah, know, a tragedy kind of thing. <laughs> I think that's the name of this podcast. What's that? Climbing 14ers, you're not in Disney World. You're not in Disney World. <laughs> Disneyland. Disneyland's Disney better anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you, you kind of asked a question about helicopters. Or how, you know, what people think, what, you know, if they're going to get rescued. Um, are you interested? And the thing about helicopters is there's only certain helicopters that can, that can maneuver at that altitude. And they're, they're generally military helicopters. You need really powerful helicopters to be able to do the kind of things. 
there's a um, high altitude uh, training facility. Uh, it's called HASP, High Altitude Training S. I don't know what this is. <laughs> it's in, it's in um, Eagle. And they, they do military training for high altitude uh, operations, I, I assume rescues and, and other things. So it's actually a really, that's where some of these rescue helicopters come from when they're available. They're not always available. But on top of that, you know, the fact that you need a military helicopter, you also, um, on a 14er, right, um, you also need flyable weather. Um, so if it's socked in, you're not going to get a helicopter. If it's too windy, you know, thunderstorms, that kind of thing, you're not going to, uh, it's, it's not going to work. The fact you can do that is actually um, really cool uh, because if you do get a helicopter from the military, it costs nothing. If they do this stuff for training anyway, you know, they're, they're happy to do it. But every time they do a rescue like that, they, they send up uh, ground teams because you may not get a helicopter and you want to be prepared to, to start evacuating the person on the ground from the ground. That's the problem with helicopter rescues. And for the people who think I'm just going to crawl out, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, there's some real, I understand, I understand the purity of thinking, well, if I get hurt up there, I'm either going to die or I'm going to crawl out myself, right? <laughs> yes, very pure. Um, Horrible alternative. <laughs> very pure, pure climber. Like, I don't want to burden everybody else. I made this choice. Uh, well, you're not going to crawl out. <laughs> and I'll give you a, a, an example of, we actually, in Rocky Mountain Rescue, had a guy uh, at some point who fell rock climbing in Eldorado Springs, um, and he was kind of up the trail. And he broke, uh, I think, at least one ankle, maybe both. And we showed up there with a litter and said, you know, Hey, we're here. We're gonna you know, take you down. He said, "No, I don't want to risk it. I'm just gonna crawl out of here." I said, "Okay, um, but we'll just hang out in case you change your mind." <laughs> ten feet later, he changed his mind. <laughs> this is the worst ten feet of his life. Yeah, and you know, if you have a broken bones and you're like crawling out, you're just gonna make things worse. You're gonna lose your limb. You're gonna break cause, you know, veins to, to be severed and all kinds of problems, right? Um, <laughs> so let's just rule that one out. And the other thing is, you know, if you die up there, your body's not going to be left up there. Nobody, yeah, somebody's going to come get your body. So um, that's, that's just um, a ridiculous kind of thought, actually. Um, and talking about dead bodies. <laughs> Segway. So most of, um, or a lot of uh, rescue missions, uh, non-rescue, this isn't necessarily a 14-year thing, but they are taking bodies out of the mountains. Um, you know, whether the person died of uh, an accident, there are far more people who commit suicide in the mountains. <laughs> and, and, and so the rescue teams have to go up and get their bodies. 
Huh. And uh, that that's a very, um, they are relatively busy doing that. It's not like they're doing it every day, but but there's a lot of bodies that they have to take out of mountains. Anyway, that that's that's actually a big duty that they have. Hmm. You ever hear about that? You don't. Let me. I'll tell you about a couple of unusual uh, things that happened during my career. And um, one was uh, uh, this. This was kind of, believe it or not, a really fun thing uh, mission. And that was a plane crash. <laughs> and uh, not the plane crash wasn't fun. Uh, but um, a small plane crashed in um, in the Boulder uh, watershed, which is a closed area. You can't hike and climb in there. Uh, actually, I didn't know where the plane was. And when a plane crashes, it has an ELT, an electronic locator. Uh, so these things automatically uh, trigger when the plane crashes, like if there's a jolt. This is how a lot of planes are, small planes are found. Um, when they crash in the remote wilderness. And so we had to use these ELTs to find this plane. And they used to do a lot more than, than they do now. And the cool thing about this is, for me was this was kind of the last plane crash in Boulder County that they found with an ELT. I was on that and we went up and we found this big core and as at the top of this core, there's this wreckage, this little plane. And we go up to the plane there's nobody in it. <laughs> We're like, what the hell? Huh. Is that, is, I mean, there, it wasn't survivable crash, but there's no body and nowhere around, you know. And this is a, is in June, um, kind of high up, so it was snowing. Um, but it wasn't that much snow. Either. Anyway, we, you know, okay, we found the plane, didn't find the body. We'll come up and look, look for the body uh, later and. Uh, Next day, uh, went up to look for the body, and it was—it had rolled 700 feet down the floor, you know, resting place down below. Like he was ejected right out the window. Oh. Um, anyway, we had to pick him up, and he was his body was—it was pretty messed up, as you might imagine. <laughs> Put him in a body bag, and then take him down in a litter down to a. Um, you know where they could they could take them out uh, by a helicopter um, down lower because they couldn't get the helicopter flying down high. That was like one of my first uh, rescue missions, and I thought if I can handle that, you know, body and loading them up and, and everything, then then it'd be okay. And it was uh, it was okay. So I was, you know, it was a little stressful, but you know, I I, I thought oh I you know I can. Pretty much handle anything after that, and um, over time you kind of back away from from all the really difficult things, uh, medical things, and, and that's pretty common in, in on rescue teams. Is the newer people are actually doing the hands-on taking care of the person because I think stress kind of builds up in people, um, and they they want to help with the technical side and, and carrying things, but being face to face with the person is a, uh, a lot harder over time, and um, so you kind of back up there. Well, I do have the last question I wanted to ask you was about Little Bear. Yeah, 
since you report seem to be they're not in the hourglass or the bowling alley section of little bear like you think you they would they're they're on the other the other gullies that people get off route yeah yeah and it's always on a descent that these guys get uh get off route and that that's really um an experience level thing and kind of paying attention to where you are so you know if you if you climb up you know you're climbing really hard up this gully and it's like it's hard to do but you know it's not like terrible technical or anything like that they get to the top and there's just nice flat ridge and you're like oh great now i can see where we need to go and you're all excited to go up to the summit well you should probably turn around and look where you came up because you're gonna have to go down on right and that's kind of a thing that um i do all the time by the way i always look behind me and because it's going to look completely different on the way down, right? Very easy to go down the wrong hole. Order. That's something. That's that's the way you prevent that problem. Is look at where you are. Look for like there's a. When we were up there, there's a big cairn on the correct floor, and then if there's a cairn on the wrong one, you go and knock it down. Huh. <laughs> because I thought I was striking your book. You said there's there's six different gullies between the hourglass. And that standard gully that you go up to do the standard on Little Bear. And the ones when you turn too early, they got into a father and son in trouble, which you didn't yeah. about in the book. It's definitely nondescript if you don't pay attention to what you're doing. So, you know, with the technology today, it's pretty easy to, to uh, you know, mark where you're on your GPS where the gully is. Or just pay attention. I mean, it's, it's not that big of an area. And I think you can, you can, you know, another thing you can do, look down the thing. <laughs> and if you can't, you know, if it looks like there's a cliff down there, there probably is. <laughs> <laughs> that could be on, the, on your, on your billboard. Yeah, if right? it looks like a cliff, it probably, probably is. is. <laughs> and here's, here's another, that's, that's a good point. So here's another thing is that um, if, if you do find yourself going down the wrong one and it's getting really hard, go back up. Back. <laughs> People don't want to go back up. You know, it's like, I'm going to figure a way to get down this way, even though I know it's not right. Uh, that's, that's very common, actually. That's, we've had people dying, uh, people who died doing that, going down the wrong way, and not turning around. When it was obvious they didn't come, come up that way, right? Right. Um, back to the billboard question to kind of wrap up the podcast. If you had a longer billboard or a quick three point bullet points to tell people as they're getting into the 14ers. What would, what would your be three p quick pieces of advice? I would say pay attention to where you are, slow down, <laughs> have fun. Okay. Love it. Love that. Well, thanks for taking an hour and a half of your time and jumping on zoom and just chatting with us. We really appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, it's fun. Great. Mark, thanks so much for your service with the search and rescue. It's really good to know that we've got people like you in our corner when we're out there playing in the mountains. So thank you very much. Thanks. For the and you've got a lot better people than me out there too. <laughs> well, thanks for your time. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Great to meet you. See you, Mark. Good to meet you guys. Thanks. We'll see thank you out you. there. See ya.